I got caught up listening to those nice things he was saying about me. <laughs> I, I was wondering who he was talking about. My name's Butch Maslin. I'm alcoholic. Hi, everybody, and uh, I'm glad to be here. I want to congratulate Jimmy on his 34 years, and I know Bill had 49 last week, and two of my dear, dear friends. And congratulations to you and to the group and uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's what we celebrate. It's not about our personal wonderfulness <laughs> that we get to stay sober. It's because of a home group. It's because of Alcoholics Anonymous and a set of principles that we start to live by that allows us to stay sober and live a good life. And, Jimmy, you've been able to do that, and you've been a good friend to me for many, many years. And let me tell you, I've come a lot farther to come and be with you, uh, whether it was to talk or just to be with you, my dear friends. So thank you for the invitation and many, many more uh, one day at a time. Uh, I want to hope there's some new folks here. I know there is tonight. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're in a good, good place. And uh, this is a great room. You can feel this. Uh, I love my ho- I'm a, uh, uh, a group guy. My home group is the Three Legacy Group, Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Mondays and Thursdays just outside of Toronto. If you're ever there, we'd love to see you. I belong to a strong group, Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to say I belong to the best group in the world. I don't say that any longer. I find it very arrogant of me. <laughs> But I belong to a strong group. I belong to a group where all three legacies are in place. Where, yes, personal recovery is there and we teach and study our 12 steps and our process, but where unity is there, where we operate under the umbrella of our 12 traditions, where they're not just something that's stuck up on the wall to be read, but where as a group we function and operate under those traditions. I'm a, a group that belongs in service that as a group. Not just one or two individuals constantly doing everything, but we operate and function as a group. As a group, we carry the message. We just don't open the doors and hope that somebody comes, but we carry a message. we got committees that go to that detox every Monday and Thursday night and make sure those new people are at our meetings. We have a beginner's room so those new people can come, can find out what Alcoholics Anonymous is and what Alcoholics Anonymous isn't. I belong to a group where you walk through that door, there'll be six people to shake your hand and welcome you. I want to thank the guys who are at the door tonight to shake our hands and welcome us as we come in here. Because I'm a guy that believes that's probably the single most important thing that we can do in Alcoholics Anonymous as a group. The single most important thing is to be at that door to shake the hand of that new guy or new gal when they walk through that door for their first meeting. Because an in-depth version of step four doesn't mean a damn thing to them. But a warm handshake, welcome, come on in and sit down and have a cup of coffee, means a great, great deal. I belong to a group, there's enthusiasm. I like enthusiasm. I think enthusiasm's contagious. I love it. I love it. I know there's no such thing as a bad group. But there's some trying hard. (laughs) They're trying hard. Like a morgue, for God's sakes. Don't you love that laughter when we come into the room, Jack? That energy, that buzz, it's just like being in a bar. (laughs) It's beautiful. Everybody talking, nobody listening. (laughs) Alcoholics, the most self-centered people in the world. You ever tried to talk to somebody after the meeting? Ten people walk up and say, I don't mean to interrupt. (laughs) Oh, yes, you do. Huh? I belong to a strong group. I belong to a group where our goal, we don't always mean it, but our goal is that everybody that comes and joins that group has a commitment. It has a job in that group so they can start to feel a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe, fellow alcoholics, I really truly believe in all my heart 
that when a guy or a gal walk into a group where such, when those things are in place, their chances of recovery become much greater than if they walk into a place where none of that's happening. So I'm honored to be here at a strong group, Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the enthusiasm that's in this room. It shows that Alcoholics Anonymous is working. And when I say, uh, I'm going to talk fast. When I say that I'm happy to be here, I really and truly am uh, uh, happy to be here. Because alcoholics don't always get where they're going. Drinking alcoholics seldom get where they're going. But sometimes even sober alcoholics don't get where they're going. I'm going to share a quick story with you about that. Let me just tell you, first of all, there's a time in my life I was not allowed in the United States of America. <laughs> Let me add, nor should I have been. They said, we have enough people like you here already. We don't need to import them. <laughs> and I applied to the United States Department of Justice for a waiver that would allow me to come into your great country. I have it right now. It's out my suitcase in John's truck. Beautiful piece of paper about that big. United States Department of Justice has my name on it. Allows me to come into the USA on humanitarian grounds. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> The other thing, I don't know about you, but I from time to time can misplace things. So when I got that waiver, I made 25 photocopies just to be safe. The other, and so every time I come here, including today, I've got to show them that. And we have a discussion, sometimes longer than others. And the other thing that when I come here, they want to know where I'm going. They don't want to know that I'm, I'm going to North Carolina, I'm going to Greensboro. They want to know precisely where I am. I don't know why they want to know, but they seem to want to know. So anyway, I'm going to an AA thing a number of years ago in Illinois. And, uh, and I'm getting all my gear together. I couldn't find my waiver. I said to my wife, I said, where's my waiver? Like, it's her job to know where my waiver is. She said, I don't know, Butch. It's wherever you've put it. I said, no, it's not. You've lost it. <laughs> she said, take one of those photocopies and get going. You're going to miss your flight. So I get all my gear together. I got my stuff. And please don't misunderstand. I'm about to say our homeland security, our border patrol do a wonderful job protecting our borders. God bless those men and women. But I think when they go to border patrol school, they teach them how not to smile. Serious people. So anyway, I get all my gear. I go there. I get up to the counter. I give the guy the stuff. He looks at the waiver. He says to me, what are you, a criminal? I said, well, you might have said that at one time. He says to me, this is a photocopy. I said, yes, sir. The original's at home for safekeeping. <laughs> Lies just fall out of my mouth. Just fall. Natural. I, don't need, I need to think about truth. Lies just come rapid fire. Just like that. <coughs> he said to me, you can't travel on a photocopy. He said, you have your I-94 form. I pulled out this form. I give it. He says, that's the wrong form. I thought, this isn't shaping up well. He said, you go over there, you fill out the proper form, and you got to go see somebody about this photocopy because you cannot travel on a photocopy. I thought, I'm not going to Illinois today. Anyway, I go over and fill out the proper form, and I got one of those keen alcoholic minds <laughs> that you only hear about from the alcoholic. You will not hear about the keen alcoholic mind at the Al-Anon meeting, will you, Kay? <laughs> <laughs> and I wait, and I watch till his line's full, and I see a more gentle man like Jimmy. I go to Jimmy's line. I go, I give this guy all my paperwork, the stuff. He says to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Illinois. He said, what's your purpose of business? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, uh, he said, what's the address you're staying at? Oh, Jesus. I'd forgot to get the address. I said to him, I said, uh, I don't know. He said, you don't know where you're going? I said, no, I don't. I said, but it's okay because somebody's going to pick me up at the airport and take me there. He says to me, who's picking you up at the airport? 
I said, uh, I, I, I don't know. He said, let me get this straight. Somebody you don't know is picking you up, taking you somewhere you don't know where you're going. I said, yes, sir, that's correct. He says to me, he said, what did you say your purpose of business is again? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, what are you going to talk about? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and before I could answer him, he holds up his hands and says, hold it. Let me guess. You don't know. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here tonight. On September the 21st, 1989, two men came to my mother's house practicing Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. Now that should tell you something right there, shouldn't it? My mother's house. Somewhere every 33-year-old self-respecting alcoholic should be with his mummy. Two men came to my mother's house practicing this program in its, in its most simplest play. They made the effort to leave their homes that night. They drove to my mother's house, came to my mother's house, and talked to me about their drinking. They did not talk to me about my drinking. They did not tell me I shouldn't drink, I shouldn't drug, I should go to treatment. They didn't tell me nothing. Those two men came to my mother's house that night, talked to me about their drinking, and told me what had happened in their lives since they came to something called Alcoholics Anonymous. Would I like to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with them? I was a helpless, hopeless, chronic alcoholic. I'd been, I'd been drinking whiskey and sticking needles in my arms since I was 13 years old. And those two men came to my mother's house that night, September the 21st, 1989, took me to my first meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been with you ever since that night. I don't know how to explain that to you, what to tell you about that, but I want to tell you I'm extremely grateful for that experience because that's not everybody's experience that comes to Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous to turn to drinking and come back to AA. A lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous many times return to drinking and come back to AA. Some people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, return to drinking, and never come back to AA. But that was my experience, and I'm grateful for that experience. The other thing I'm very grateful for is I've liked coming here from that first meeting. Almost from that first night, there was something in that room that night. I didn't know what it was then. I know what it is tonight. It was hope. I left there with a little bit of hope. And I've loved coming to Alcoholics Anonymous ever since that night. I love going to meetings. I love going to conferences, you announced. I love going to service days, workshops, assemblies. I love listening to the story of an alcoholic. And the seedier, the better. The seedier, the better. So I have no regrets since I come to Alcoholics Anonymous up to and including tonight. Other than one, I do have one regret. And that is that I didn't get to drink with some of you people. <laughs> huh, Dougal? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought that, but I met some people here. I walked away from thinking I'd like to a little drink with that guy. Huh? We're a cast of characters in this outfit. You couldn't make some of this stuff up that goes around right here. This is the greatest show on earth. Huh? <laughs> so absolutely. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I went to an AA thing many years ago up in northern Ontario, a long way from our house up on the Canadian-American border. I went to talk a little roundup. I got up Saturday morning, went out to have some breakfast. Uh, I was going to talk that night. I picked up the local paper. I like to read about the community I've been invited to come to. Only seems fitting. I'm reading on the front page of this paper. This is a true story. Well, I hope my whole story is true, but this part is for, this part is for sure. There was an article on the front page of the paper. There was a man. They had arrested him coming across the American-Canadian border drunk on a stolen street sweeper. Oh, <laughs> And my first thought was, I'd like that little drink with him. Huh? <clears throat> I was 25 years old and my wife had thrown me out of our home. <clears throat> and I want to tell you that I loved her as much as I was capable of loving. 
It's important that I say that to you, as much as I was capable of loving at that time. I had a new address every night. I lived in the stairwells of apartment buildings in downtown Toronto. I just went from building to building. I had a new address each night. And at nighttime, I was under that stairwell. In the daytime, I was like a rat in a sewer. Out on the streets looking to score, looking to scam, looking to rip somebody off to get the money I need to get to do the things I need to do. I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about AA luggage, matching green garbage bags. Huh? I didn't have any AA luggage. Had the clothes on my back. Still had an ultra suede jacket. <laughs> Going to be cool at any expense. I'm 25 years old. I'm living in stairwells. I got the clothes on my back and nobody, nobody wants anything more to do with me. And let me add, nor should they. Nor should they. Huh? I'm a user and a taker. I use and take from people, particularly the ones that love me. But that's the condition I'm in. I'm, I'm in the east end of Toronto one night. I'm all jacked up and nowhere to go. And my wife and I owned a home, what they call the beaches in Toronto, down near the lakefront. We had a screened-in porch and a couple wicker couches on it. And I thought, I'm going to slip in there and get a couple hours before she gets up, wakes up. Well, I pass out. And I wake up to one of these. And I opened my eyes and looked. And there was that little gal that I loved. And she looked at me with disgust and pity. And she said, Butch, you're a useless piece of scum. And you'll never change. And if you cared anything about me, you get up and get out of here and please don't ever come back because I can't stomach to look at you. And I get up and I left there. It was a hot, hot summer day and I'm sick and I'm, I'm dirty and I'm heart sick. And I walk down to the boardwalk down on the lakefront and I'm sitting down there in that condition on a park bench. And over where you guys are sitting, there was another bench and there was a little boy, five or six years old, sitting on that bench eating a popsicle. And I looked over at that little boy and you know what I thought to myself? Wish I had a dime for a popsicle. The big shot, the dope dealer, everybody's friend, good old Butch, sitting on a park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. Nobody on the face of this earth wanting anything more to do with me. And here was the thought that came to my mind that moment as clear as I'm thinking right now. I knew at that moment that that park bench and places like it was where I was going back to every single time. I've always been a talker and a hustler. I knew I'd, I'd come up with a deal. I'd get some cash somehow. I always did. But I knew at that moment that that park bench or somewhere just like it was where I was going to go back to. I was 25 years old. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 33. And I joined a group. And I got a sponsor. And I did the things you guys told me to do. Forget this suggested crap. The stuff you told me to do. You know where I was a number of years ago now? Huh? Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy. Standing in the Sistine Chapel looking at the paintings of Michelangelo from hundreds of years before, my wife standing beside me, and the tears started to roll down my cheeks. And I thought of that guy sitting on that park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. Long way from that park bench to the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It is a long way from where Jimmy Brown came from 34 years before tonight. It is a long way from where you and I came from. Many of us here tonight, the dredges of society. Many of us here tonight, our own families didn't want us any longer. Yet here we sit tonight, members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, living good, rich, full, productive lives. How do we get from where we were to where we sit tonight? How does that happen for you and I? Because it's not supposed to. But you know how it happens, don't you? And it only happens one way and only one way. And that is through the grace of God. Through a loving God that you introduced me to through the 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous and a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. You want to believe I will be internally grateful for what you've done for me. I, uh, I started to drink at an early age. I hear people talk about dysfunctional families. Was my family dysfunctional? I have no idea. Let me just tell you it wasn't the Cleaver residence in my home. 
There was lots of parties in my home, lots of drinking in my home, always on the weekend. I could take them beers and take away the empties. They'd let me have swigs. They'd say, isn't he cute? And I loved that attention. So I started to drink when I was four years old. Now, I wasn't a daily drinker when I was four. My allowance wouldn't allow it. I actively sought out alcohol. I was 12 or 13 years old. I got a guy to go into a liquor store, get us a couple bottles of wine. I was going to be a wine connoisseur, two bottles of old sailor. I think that's comparable to what you call Thunderbird in your country. And let me tell you, any wine I ever drank had a cap, not a cork. <laughs> we drank that wine, got drunk, puked, and passed out, and that was the end of my social drinking, all downhill from there. I don't know if you have this in North Carolina or not, but I hear people in some of these topic meetings say things like they came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping Alcoholics Anonymous is going to help them become a social drinker. You hear that here, Mike? They say that here. Came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping Alcoholics Anonymous was going to help them be a social drinker. Let me tell you tonight, I didn't want to be a social drinker when I drank. I don't want to be a social drinker tonight. I don't particularly like social drinkers. I find them weird. Uh, you ever drink? You ever watch a social drinker drink? They let the ice melt in their glass. That's alcohol abuse. You ever drink with a social drinker? It's enough to make you puke, isn't it? You're having a few scoots. Would you like another one? Oh, no, thanks. I'm starting to feel it. Holy Jesus! I thought that's when you put it in overdrive. Social drinker. My wife's Jesus. My wife's a social drinker. Johnny and the boys know D. D's at home right now praying for me. Or for you. But D's a social drinker. And I'll tell you a little story, Jimmy. You don't know this, but a little while ago we're at home. We have an open concept uh, home in our home. D's over in the kitchen, and I see she's got a bottle of wine on the counter bill with a funnel in it. I thought, what's she doing with that funnel? So I watched her. She takes a glass of wine, starts pouring it into the funnel. I said to her, what are you doing over there? She says to me, I put too much in the glass. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I said, don't you ever do that again. I'll divorce you. Social drinker. <laughs> I'm a barroom drinker. I don't identify with closet alcoholics. Doesn't mean they're not alcoholic. Just drank drifting to me. You know, you hear them. They get the bottle, go in, lock the door, put on the country western music. I don't identify. I'm a barroom drinker. I love bars. I love them. I like opening the door to a bar. Huh? The smoke would billow out, the tinkle of glass, the smell of stale urine. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I like neon. I like I liked neon when I was drinking. I still like neon. That's why I stay out of those casinos. They're not good for guys like me. And I got to tell you, I thank God I never tried to get sober in the United States of America. I don't know if it would have made it. God, I love to drink in your country. I loved you. got many more here than we got at home. I call them Jack Juke Joints. You know those divey, scuzzy, little rat hole bars, huh? You got a couple right around here. I saw them. Beautiful. They're beautiful. Huh? Little neon sign says cocktails. Oh, I went to an AA thing a number of years ago in Pennsylvania. I decided to drive there with my wife came with me. I'm driving through this little town in the middle of nowhere. I'm going down the main street. I hammer on the brakes to my car. I'm back in my car. My wife said to me, Butch, what are you doing? I said, I got to see this again. Guys, there it was. This divey little rat hole joint had a neon sign. Said, stop for one, stay till one. Oh, oh. If I'd have been drinking, I'd have had that tattooed on me. The work of art. 
I'm not going to talk any more about my drinking. I'm going to quickly share with you what drinking does for an alcoholic of my type. It's important that we talk about our drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the greatest tool that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. Identification. One alcoholic identifying with another alcoholic. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous work for alcoholics. Other programs work for other problems. We have to have identification. But I've come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't matter if I'm drinking Dom Perignon or Aquashave. Doesn't matter if I'm drinking in the Fairmont Hotel or under a bridge in a box. It's what drinking does for me that's important. Not to me, for me. And the things I want to share with you, I did not know this at the time. I want to share this particularly for some folks here that are new tonight. I didn't know this at the time. I saw it in inventory. I saw it as you took me back through my life and helped me see my life honestly for the very first time ever. But as I look back today, I see some things. I don't know about you, but I remember being a young kid in school. I'd be, I'd be uh, five or six or ten, ten years old, and the teacher would ask a question. She'd start looking around the room to see who she was going to answer that question. My head would go down like this. Oh, Jesus, don't let her ask me. Because I knew if she made eye contact with me, she's asking me to answer the question, and I don't want to answer the question. When I went to school, we used to have to do book report. Get up in front of the whole classroom full of kids. No good. No good. I'd get up in the morning, I'd say, Ma, I've been puking all night. I'm sick. I can't go to school today. Please don't make me go. Because I want to tell you, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified at the thought of getting up in front of that classroom full of kids. Every decision I ever made in my life was based on fear. Most of it unfounded and ungrounded, but fear. Where I go, what I do, who I hang out with is all based on a comfort level. I don't know about any of you guys, but I every now and then would get goofy. I'd go on about a five-day run. I'd come home on a Sunday after being gone for five days. My wife would be there. I'd walk in. I'd say, sweetheart, that's it. No more. I mean, no, 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 no more. I know I said this last week, but this time, I swear in my ma's life, I'm never having another drink of whiskey as long as I live. That's Sunday. I'd wake up Monday. I'd think to myself, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'd have to go to a wedding that following Saturday. You ever go to a wedding sober? That's a bad deal. That is a bad, bad deal. I would be at that church sweating, thinking about the reception that's going to start in three hours. I'm back at that reception, and the dance is going to start. Huh? And I'm going to tell you something. I got sweaty hands. I got a knot in the pit of my gut. I feel awkward and out of place, and it is horrible. And I have to do one of two things. I got to get over to that bar and get a couple drinks into me, or I got to get out of there because I can't stand the way I feel. Every decision I make is based on that fear. You want to know what kills an alcoholic like me? I don't know. I'm afraid. I think I'm afraid of nothing, and I'm afraid of everything, and I don't even know it. We talk an awful lot at these topic meetings. Let's discuss resentments tonight. Huh? I prefer to call it hate. Hate. I know you're not that sick in Greensboro, but in Toronto we are. Hate. I'm the type of alcoholic. I'm driving my car. I'm at a red light, and I'm on the nod by now. That light would turn green, and the guy behind me lays on his horn. Whoa. I almost go through the roof of my car. I want to get out of my car, go back there, open the door, drag him out by his throat, take a crowbar and crack his skull open. I know some of you nice people never thought thoughts like that, but I do. I'm not talking anger management here. I'm talking rage. I'm talking a white rage. I'm talking the kind of anger you don't have 10 minutes before and you don't have 10 minutes after. But I have an anger that comes out every now and then and I can't control it. And I say things or do things to people I never wanted to say or do. And let me tell you who takes the brunt of my anger. It happens behind closed doors. Because I'm a guy who's constantly seeking your approval. So you don't display that anger there. You keep it for the people whose approval you think you already have. 
lonely. I'm standing at a subway platform in downtown Toronto on a Friday night, all jacked up, and a train pulled up, and the doors open, and a young couple my age get off that train holding hands, and they walk off into the night laughing and smiling. And I look at that couple, and I feel sad. I think, why can't I be like those people? Why is all the trouble got to keep happening in my life time and time again? I remember walking through a nice residential area on a warm summer's night. You get that nice warm summer night just getting dark. And I'd walk down a street and I'd see the nice homes. And I'd see the television on inside and the families in there. And I feel like crying. Why can't I just have a nice home and a family like other people? Why is all the trouble got to keep happening all the time? From as long as I can ever, ever remember, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. If I was at this bar, I'd say, drink up, let's go to that bar. If we're at this party, drink up, let's go over to the other party. If I was married to you, I should be married to her. Never quite right. And I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you, I get one of those double vodkas or whatever I was doing that day. It was like this. I don't know if you remember or not. I'll give you one more here. I did that in a meeting one night. Two guys got up and left. (laughs) You should see when I do that at detox. Oh, they're on the ceiling. It's beautiful. Let me tell you something. I have about four of those double vodkas, huh? And I walk into that wedding like I own the joint. And I'm moving and grooving. And I'm talking to the ladies. And I'm sitting with my buddies. And we're drinking and snorting and carrying on. And at that moment, everything in my life is absolutely perfect. Huh? Same wedding. Same hall. Same food, same people, same music, same everything. But you put four vodkas in me and my perception of reality changes. And I get an immediate, not in 28 days, an immediate sense of ease and comfort. And that is why I drink whiskey, because I like the effects it produces. But I am an alcoholic. Something happens to me that only happens to one out of every ten people that drink it, called a phenomenon of craving. And I'd start drinking. I'd end up drinking 60 ounces of vodka, and I'd smash up my car. I'd tell my wife I'm going out for a loaf of bread. I come, into eight, come home 18 months later, and my wife's leaving. I'm out there drinking, drugging, partying, carrying on. I don't want to stop. I don't have any money, so I'm stealing yours, and now I go to jail. And what everybody focused on in my life was crash cars, broken marriages, lost jobs, going to jails. We looked at drinking. We never looked at alcoholism. And people told me from the time I was 18 years old, Butch, if you just quit drinking whiskey and sticking needles in your arms, you'd be all right. And there was times I wasn't drinking whiskey, and guess what? I wasn't all right. As a matter of fact, I was crazier sober than I ever was when I drank. Excuse me. But all those well-meaning people could see was that when I drank, the trouble that followed. So naturally, they said, stop drinking. But those well-meaning people didn't understand how I feel when I'm sober. How could they know? I didn't know. I'd love to stand up here at night tell you woke up one morning, HFC Finance was dying to lend me money, work was thinking of promoting me, and my wife was sending me flowers. And I thought, I think I'll join AA today. huh? Every now and then I hear some moron from the front of one of these rooms say things like, if you're not here for the right reasons, you might as well drink. And every now and then I'd like to get that tire iron back out. The right reasons? Did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous for the right reasons? I come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had nowhere else to go. One more time, my back was against the wall. My boss called me into work on a Tuesday. He said, but you're a hard worker. I said, well, thank you. He said, but you're not here much. (laughs) 
picky, picky, picky. He said, you think you might have a problem with alcohol? I said, no, but I know what the problem is. He said, maybe you'd share that with me. I said, it's my health. He said, really? I said, yes. Now, granted, my poor health may have something to do with my drinking. I'm going to quit drinking. My health's going to get better. Everyone's going to be okay. He said, you think you might need some help quitting drinking? I said, no, I'm just going to quit. Got up and left his office to find out later his wife had been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for many years. Can you imagine the chuckle he had as I left? Huh? Well, he's just going to quit. That was Tuesday. I woke up Thursday in another hotel room in another town drunk. I didn't keep him waiting long. And for whatever the reason, that morning I knew the jig was up. You know when you know? Huh? I'd used all the lies. Alcoholics are liars. I don't know what that's about. I will lie when the truth would serve me better. Huh? So I knew I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm the, well, I'll tell you this. I'm the type of alcoholic. I go out and play golf all by myself and cheat on the scorecard. I do. That's not the best part. At the end, I look at the card and go, good game, Butch, good game. <laughs> so I've, I've used all the lies. I know I got to come up with something good. I had a few tequilas. I turned my mind to it. I thought, I know what. I'll tell them I'm alcoholic and I'm going to go to AA. And that's how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And for anybody tonight in the room who's new, we couldn't care less why you're here. We couldn't care less why you're here. We're just glad to see you. We're just glad to see you. And maybe... Just maybe by the grace of God, something someone will say, something you'll hear, something you'll read, and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous can happen in your life, and you can go on to live a happy and useful life like so many men and women here have been able to do. Just keep coming, because we're glad to see you. And I've been a blessed man since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, as I said earlier. Blessed man. Deep love, deep, deep love in my heart for the old-timers. Deep love. Men and women have been coming for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years who've made sacrifices and commitments to Alcoholics Anonymous who would be here for a guy like me and those new folks tonight. I love them from the bottom of my heart. And if you are new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would strongly urge you to get close to these men and women and learn from their experience because we won't have them with us forever. And I had some giants come into me. I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say, you should never put people on pedestals. Well, you do what you need to do. But let me tell you something. I have some people on pedestals. Giants in our program. Some of them right in the room here tonight. Never for a moment have I lost sight of their humanities. The greatest gift my late sponsor ever gave me, the greatest thing that old man ever did, it wasn't some profound thing he pulled out of the book, some spiritual wisdom he laid on me. The greatest gift that old man ever gave me was he allowed me to see his warts. He allowed me to see him get afraid. He allowed me to see him get angry. He allowed me to see him get selfish. He allowed me to see all of him. Because if he hadn't and you don't continue to, I will never measure up. We are much more brothers and sisters in our defects than we are in our virtues, aren't we? And I had some wonderful people come into my life, none more than my own sponsor. My sponsor was an old-timer in Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor came to Alcoholics Anonymous on July the 17th, 1958. And was an active member until the day he died on June the 10th, 2004. I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say, if you like your sponsor, you have the wrong sponsor. I hear that and I know I'm listening to an idiot. Christ's sakes, an idiot. I didn't like my sponsor, I loved him. And I love my sponsor today. You see, you were the first people who helped me understand what my problem was. Because I don't know about any of you. Maybe you knew what your problem was when you got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't. I'd been told what my problem was. A lot of people, my wife told me what my problem was. 
My parents told me what, judges told me what my problem was. Psychiatrists told me I'd heard all my life, which just quit drinking. You were the first people that said, kid, drinking's not your problem. It's your solution. How I feel when I'm sober is my problem. Sober, I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. Sober, I can't seem to control my emotions. Sober, I'm prone to misery and depression. Sober, I can't seem to make a living or be of real use to others. Sober, I'm full of fear. And sober, I'm unhappy. Friends, that is alcoholism. Crash cars, broken marriages, lost jobs are the result of too much drinking. So an alcoholic of my type, not drinking and not treating alcoholism and sitting in AA meetings does not treat alcoholism. That's the great myth that kills many alcoholics. The meetings are where the solution is. The meetings are where the fellowship is. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous treat alcoholism. And an alcoholic of my type, not drinking and not treating alcoholism, sober, will get so restless, irritable, and discontent that eventually, and that's the key word, eventually, I have to do one of two things. I don't have a choice. I've lost the power and choice. That's what makes me alcoholic. That is the difference between me and the guy that goes out and gets drunk every weekend and goes to work Monday morning, as described in our book as the hard drinker. But a guy like me, not drinking and not treating that alcoholism, will get so restless that eventually I have to do one of two things. Drink again or blow my brains out. Most of us drink again. But we all know somebody who's paid the supreme price, don't we? Didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue. You told me that selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of my troubles. The root. I didn't do an inventory and go, my, 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 but you haven't been a very nice boy. I did not need to do inventory to find out I was a lying, cheating thief. I knew that. But I had no idea the depth of my self-centeredness. I had no idea of how selfishness and self-centeredness manifest in my life in ways that I don't even see happening. I didn't have a clue. And you told me that from that selfishness and self-centeredness comes a hundred forms of fear and all my resentments, but all based in self. And you told me I had to be rid of it or else it would kill me. And there seems no way of getting rid of it without God's help. And you told me that was the purpose of this process. That was the purpose of our 12 steps. Through some actions that I take and some principles I start to try and live by, I can find a power greater than myself that would solve my problem. I didn't have a clue. I thank God for strong sponsorship. I am the product of strong sponsorship, and I believe in strong sponsorship. And guys, I believe that without strong sponsorship, our chances of recovery become very, very minimal. I really, truly believe that from my experience. So I thank God. I thank God for that direction. I thank God that I didn't run into some of this quick lip crap that I hear in AA. Oh, just don't drink and go to the meetings. You'll be okay. Isn't that a nice little out for me now that my life's better that I can sit at home on a Wednesday night and watch my flat screen TV? No, no, no. The people who come into my life said, kid, you have a lot more wrong with you than drinking. You come with us. We're going to show you what's wrong. And more importantly, we're going to show you what you got to do to get better. I thank God for that. I thank God for your direction. Self cannot treat self. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you'll be more than happy to do so. But I believe it says in our book at step 10 that by now, sanity will have returned. That must mean up until then, I'm operating from an insane position. I need your direction. I need your guidance. And you took me through the inventory process. You took me through the amends. Incredibly freeing thing for a guy like me. 
freeing thing for a guy that was wrapped up in self his entire life. I don't know about any of you guys, but I can tell you that from as long as I can ever remember in my life, for a long time sober, and today, if I'm not in fit spiritual condition, the first thing I do is size myself up. When I was a kid in school, they had the kids who did well and belonged to the teams and the clubs and all that. I hated those kids. I didn't know why then. I know why today. I didn't feel as good as those kids. Then they had the kids behind the school or starting to smoke and drink and cutting up. That's where I hung out because I felt a little sharper than most of those kids. But my entire life, the first thing I did for every single person I ever met, the first thing I do is I size myself up. And I am always, always less than or better than. Never the same as. And today, because of this process and the amends process, getting right with the world, I can look you in the eye and just be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. No better than and no less than. Just one of God's kids, just the same as you. That's a freeing thing for a guy who spent 90% of his entire lifetime seeking your approval, acting in a way. And you want to know something? I don't ever know I'm even doing it. Didn't have a clue I was even doing it. I thank God for that. And I thank God, you, you know, I've listened, I don't know if you have this here, here or not, but I've heard people in some of these uh, closed meetings talk, talk for 45 minutes, debate whether they were recovered or recovering. Jesus, smoke starts coming out my ears. Our book is very clear. But I thank God what you showed me in our book where you said that it is easy to let up in the spiritual program action and to rest on our laurels. And if I do, I'm headed for trouble because I'm not cured of alcoholism. Not cured. What I have is a daily reprieve that's contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I cannot stay spiritually fit today because I used to be a GSR. I cannot stay spiritually fit today because I used to go to the detox. I cannot stay spiritually fit because I used to make coffee at my home group. I stay spiritually fit today by the actions that I take today. And I want to tell you that I am as active and more in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous than I have ever been in my life. Because I want to share with you that I have a lot more to lose today than I did on September the 21st, 1989. I'm staying right here close to you. Right here close to you. And he introduced me to a loving God. Incredible deal. Incredible deal. You know, Chuck Chamberlain used to say that we have one problem and only one problem. And from that one problem comes all other problems, but we only have one problem. And that one problem is a conscious separation from God. If you would have asked me when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, do you believe in God? I would have said to you, yes, I do. And it had as much meaning in my life as the price of coffee beans in Brazil tonight, but I wasn't a disbeliever. And God was way up there in heaven. He had long hair and a beard and a big stick. Charlton Heston. huh? And if you were good, good things happen. And if you are bad, bad things happen. Well, if God's way up there and I'm down here, have you ever heard more of a conscious separation in your life? You were the very first people that said to me, no, no, kid. Deep down inside of every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And in the final analysis, in the final analysis... It is only there that he may be found. And that our great reality is that our creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way that's indeed miraculous. Incredible gift you've given me. Incredible gift you've given me. You know, I, I hear people a lot of times talk about that spiritual way. Don't you love Bill's language? I love the language in the book where he says, we will suddenly... We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Why didn't he just put, we will realize that God, suddenly, 
You know that time that I'm talking about? I know many of you here know, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I pray God you stay till you do. But you know that time when you're sitting in a meeting somewhere and somebody says something or you're reading something and you see, you know what I'm talking about, Mike? And you know. You know, I drive down that highway. I drive down that highway today. I put a little Leonard Skinner in there, a little free bird. I got a little free bird. (laughs) And I drive down that highway and that sun's coming up and I drive down there and I'm coming to be with you. And my eyes fill up with tears. They start to roll down my cheeks. And I am conscious of the presence of God. I am conscious of the presence of God. And I go from believing to knowing. You see, if believing was enough, we wouldn't have priests in AA. <laughs> if be- we can go to any t- detox to treatment anywhere and say to people, do you believe? And I are, oh yeah, I believe. And many be drunk next week. We go from believing to knowing to having that conscious contact to this power. And when that happens, this thing becomes real. And it becomes a way of life. We go from self-examination, it starts to shift now, where we stop looking at us and start to look outward. And we start to make this thing a design for living. And a great demonstration must be practiced in our homes, occupations, and affairs. What an incredible gift you've given me. Incredible gift. And the great paradox you told me, if I want to keep it, i got to give it away. That nothing, nothing ensures us immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. When all else fails, this works. The occasional good deed is not enough. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant, constant thought of others. Unless I continue to enlarge and perfect on my spiritual life through unselfish acts and helping others, I will surely drink when I hit those certain low spots. If you're an Alcoholics Anonymous and you've been fortunate enough to stay and are sober for a couple of years and everything's gone well for you, buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. Life will happen. Huh? Life will happen. Nothing ensures us immunity. It says in our book that alcoholics laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations. <laughs> you ever wonder sometimes what visitors might think of us? I don't know if you do this here or not, but at home when we celebrate a birthday, you get to pick the speaker and maybe some family come, maybe some people from work come, never been to AA before, don't know anything about AA. Some monkey like me gets up here and says things like, yes, I bought a brand new Cadillac, picked it up at 9 o'clock in the morning and totaled it at 10. Told my wife I was going out for a loaf of bread. I run into Bill. I end up in Alaska. Come home 18 months later. <laughs> I got a buddy from California talks about spilling a bottle of whiskey in his bed and then sucking it out of the sheets. <laughs> we laugh, laugh, laugh. You ever wonder what those visitors might be thinking? Says we laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations. You know what it says after that? Ah, of course you do. Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Because we've recovered. We've recovered and been given the power to help others. God's power, not my power. You and I, when armed with facts about ourselves, that's what this process is about. That's what we're doing. Arming ourselves with facts so we can be of maximum service to God and those about us. When we have those facts and armed with this solution... We're able to make the difference in a few short hours when nobody else was able to. We've been uniquely gifted to help others. 
Huh? And until such an understanding happens, little or nothing can be done for the alcoholic. Incredible gift. My life before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous had absolutely no meaning or no purpose whatsoever. None. I don't know what your life was like. It's none of my business. But I, had, I was either drunk, planning on getting drunk, recovering from being drunk. In trouble, trying to get out of trouble, planning on more trouble. I work all week so I can get money to drink all weekend. I deal so I can do. That's my life. And, Alkies, and all the people in my life the same. Alkies don't hang out with social drinkers. I go to a detox at home. I've been going there every Monday for 25 years. Not because I'm wonderful. It's the way I've been taught. It's the way I've been taught. And, and I go there and I like to go Sundays if I'm at home. We have a big speaker meeting about this size every Sunday. I like to take new people to speaker meetings so they can listen. I happen to think it's good for new people to listen. I know it's not that fashionable today, but I happen to think it's good. Anyway, I go there. There's a guy in there, and he's in bad shape. I'm not talking detoxing, hungover. I'm talking bad. Like, I thought he might die, Jack. He might, he might. Well, I figured to myself, he could die at the meeting as easy as he can die here. Dying's dying. You've got to do it somewhere. Let's go. Right? We went to the meeting. We took in a me good meeting. Good for me, anyway. After the meeting, we spent a couple hours talking about this design for living, this practical program action. I left him. I never saw him again. I'm sitting in a meeting one day. I see some guy coming across the room. I could see he's headed for me, clean-cut looking guy, had a shirt, pair of slacks on. Come walking up. He said, but you probably don't remember me. I said, I'm sorry, I can't say that I do. He says, my name's Ziggy. I said, holy smokes. That isn't really what I said. That's what I'm saying here. He says, you remember me? I said, oh, I remember you. It's the guy, and he's looking good. He said, Butch, I just wanted to come and thank you for taking me to that meeting that morning. I haven't had a drink since that morning. It's almost been a year. I said, congratulations. He said, I was wondering if I can ask a favor of you. I said, if I can do it, I will. He said, will you come and talk at my one-year AA birthday? I said, I'd be honored to do that. I went into a group a handful of years ago. I got to a big meeting. I got to the front. I couldn't, get, I couldn't get going, Hank. I started to cry. And I'll tell you why. I looked in there sitting at the front table in a suit and tie looking like a million bucks with his wife and all his children was Ziggy. And he was getting his 15-year medallion. Took him to his first meeting, talked at his one-year, talked at his five-year, talked at his 10-year, talked at his 15-year. You know who I was last year? Ziggy's 20. You think my life doesn't have meaning? You think my life doesn't have purpose? My life is so full. My life is so good. I could stand up here for the next two hours. I'd be all alone, but I could do it. I could do it. <laughs> talking to you about the things that have happened in my life since I came here and did the one thing that we have to do. For those guys that are new, the one thing that we have to do, the first step, surrender. Surrender. I'm done. I'm finished. No more tough guy. No more big shot. No more Mr. Know-it-all. I'm done. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to live the way you guys are living. Will you please help me? Will you please help me? And I become willing to do whatever it is you tell me I have to do. I don't need to like it. I don't need to agree with it. I don't need to think it's good for me. I just need to do it. And when I do that, I'm starting to walk in the sunny side of the street. But until I do that, I think it's time limited. I got one story. I got four minutes. I'm getting out of here. Uh, uh, let me just share this with you for a reason. For those guys or gals that are new here tonight. You see, I remember sitting in a chair where you were like it was yesterday, like it was yesterday. And I know that when you sit out there brand new and folks get up here and they got a nice jacket and tie and a nice home and a family and a job and all that, I know that seems a long way away. I know it seems a long way away. 
we don't come up here to wear false faces. We come here to carry a message of hope. The things that we talk about are ideals that we strive towards. Some days we do better than other days. Our lives aren't perfect. We don't come here, get sober, do 12 steps, and float off into bliss. Our lives go through that. I'm going to share this story with you and we're done. Two and a half years ago, our five-year-old granddaughter was diagnosed with leukemia. And she went to Children's Hospital. She spent five months in Children's Hospital having chemotherapy. And, 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 uh, and, a, spi- and, a, and a spinal tap every week. Never complained one single time. After five months, the cancer went away and Sarah came home. And four or five months later, the cancer came back. And they said, we're going to give her the strongest radiation, the strongest chemo we can, and a bone marrow transplant. She has 30% chance. She went all through that for another five months. We didn't have a perfect match for the bone marrow, but our daughter gave a stem cell, something newer they started doing. And it worked wonderfully, wonderfully. The doctors couldn't believe it. And Sarah came home. And four months later, the cancer came back, and they said, there's no more treatment. You take Sarah home and have your time with her. And a year ago in November, we buried our seven-year-old granddaughter. It says in the 12 and 12 that self-examination, prayer, and meditation, when taken separately, I'm paraphrasing, produce a wonderful result. But when logically interwoven, when logically interwoven, form an unshakable, an unshakable foundation for life. And we have an unshakable foundation for life. You see, I know that God spins everything into gold. People say, how could that happen to that little girl? How could God let that happen? Okay? That had absolutely nothing to do with God. And the moment Sarah passed, it had everything to do with God. And he spins everything to gold. I've got two minutes. Our, our son-in-law, our son-in-law is a high school teacher. When that happened, he spent a year in that hospital room, slept in there every night. But when that happened, he started a blood drive and a bone marrow drive. And all the kids from the school came and the media found out, the television and the newspaper. And they started, they had a full page on the front page of the Toronto paper with our granddaughter, Sarah's Drive for Hope, Jack. They started a website. A million people went to that website. And all the other schools found out about it, and they started doing this. They had more bone marrow donations than they've ever had in the history of doing them. It was incredible. And up till today, there's been six young children who've had successful bone marrow transplants and are living cancer-free because of our granddaughter. You see, I know God spins everything to gold, and we have an unshakable foundation for life. You see, I've got a home group, and I've got a sponsor, and I've got men that I sponsor. You know, in those darkest days when life happens and we feel we can't make it another day, that's when the men and women in your home group and a power that we've been introduced to will pick you up and carry you home every single time. Jimmy, I want to thank you for the invitation. I want to thank the 16th group for the, your patience and listening to me tonight. You know, I don't know what's going to happen from here on in, and none of us know for sure, do we? You see, just because we get sober, become members of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, life doesn't stop happening. People die, relationships end, businesses fail, people get sick, life goes on. But I'll tell you something, every single morning for many years now, first thing in the morning, the first thing I say is I ask my friend upstairs if he sees fit, will you please keep me in Alcoholics Anonymous? Because my dear friends, there's no place in this world I'd rather be than right here with you fine, fine people. Thank you and God bless you.